just to launch this conversation. This is our playground. They have spontaneous conversations. They don't plan this. I mean, there's actually something sort of spiritual about that. What's he do? He's a human being. <laughs> yeah, I'm a sexist feminist. We should be friends. <laughs> And good evening, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, all around the globe. Sounds so grandiose, doesn't it? They are. They're listening from all around <laughs> the are. world. You know, I haven't <laughs> all of planet Earth. Yes. Hello. Yeah. Good evening, everyone. And welcome to the latest edition of the Robin Callie Show. I'm Callie Alpert here with my brother from another mother. I got to come up with something new. I know it's very redundant, but good evening, Robbie. Good evening. This is Rob K coming to you live from the talkradio.myc studios on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. <laughs> and we are here. And yeah, we are here. We are live on talkradio.myc. We are live on Facebook Live. Thank you, everyone, and welcome. Thank you for your support and for listening and now watching us. What's up, y'all? It is what I like to call a bad hair night here in New York City. It's raining a little. Um, which is a very shallow thing for me to say, given that we're getting the periphery of hurricanes and there's a lot of people that have some very serious hurricane stories to tell. So that's my, that's my, my shallow relationship with the weather tonight. It's hard to complain when like a million people in Florida still don't have their power. Yeah, yeah I'm not it's complaining like, at all. I don't know. We're winning. Yes. You know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So how was your week? Anything you want to say? Um, Share with me. I'm trying to think. Everything's good. Uh Lashana Tovad, oh, yes. all our Jew friends yes, who are absolutely. celebrating the yes. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy Healthy New Year. Yeah, but everything is all right. You know, I'm focusing on gratitude and gratitude. So, yeah, can't go wrong with that. <laughs> In that order? Yeah. How about some gratitude? Yeah. How about some more gratitude? Yeah, definitely. So things to be grateful yeah. for. I, um, that is definitely true. How about you? How was your week? Uh, my week, well, speaking of gratitude, my week is, I've got a, a lot going on, which sounds very cryptic and mysterious, but um, a lot of contrasts, I should say. So, you know, when sometimes when the shit storms hit and life gets challenging, I, it, for me, it, lately, it's been waking me up to all the more reason to have, you know, those joyous moments and to really kind of find the contrast and really make a point of making that a priority right. just to keep everything balanced and to keep still on the inside. Mm -hmm. So I'm um, trying to prioritize the gratitude when I when I can. Absolutely. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. It's on the list. It's definitely, it's a, it's high on the list. And it makes a difference. It does. I won't get into the Jerry and Esther Hicks speech yet. I mean, I did listen. I got a little mm. fix earlier today because I had the luxury. You know what I did do? And this is like, I, I don't know if I should acknowledge that this is the first time ever in my life, in my early 50s, that I've gone to jury duty. I don't know why they haven't caught up with me. Right. Um, it's not that I've intentionally tried to, to skirt my civic uh, duties. Um, sorry, I'm already scratching our guests inadvertently over here. Um, in Jersey, they're not so concerned well, about criminal activity. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so here's the deal. I do live in probably one of the two most corrupt counties in the country, I believe, right outside of New York City, Hudson County. I'm not proud or happy about that because, it, you know, that's not cool. That said, I was so impressed with the way they handle their, you know, you go there and it's like going to the DMV or the post office or something, you know, that same attitude of, you, you know, everybody's just sort of kind of schlepping along and it's a very gratuitous exercise and nobody wants to be there. And yet it's an obligation. You have to be there. Right. And they really did such a great job of engaging everyone and reminding us in a really grounded way of what an honor it is to be here. Right. The history, you know, um, other people from other countries that come um, that don't even have a, you know, a, a, a judicial system that works. And I say that in quotes because on certain days we might not agree with that. Mm. Um, but where people are, um, you know, entitled to, a, you know, a, a, that kind of a system. Right. And um, and to really be open open-hearted and, and interested and open-minded about it, which is how I felt, actually. I was fascinated by the whole thing. Right. Ultimately, I did not get put on a case, um, but I, you know, I'll, I'll stop there. But it was really a very um, interesting experience, and so shout out to them for the video that they did, because yeah. my producer mind was like, was that video a nationwide video or a statewide video? Right. Um, and it was uh, statewide, as it turned out. And uh, yeah, I, I was very um, 
entranced. Well, I, I was going to ask if they played the video for you because oh, it is. You feel patriotic at the end. You're like, all right, this isn't so bad, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I remember I went one morning for jury duty, and this is years ago. I was in Brooklyn, and um, and they played. Or no, I was in a bad mood about it. I'm like, God, I don't want to be here. I know it's my civic duty. I really don't want to have to do jury duty. And then they played that video, and I was like. All right. You know, if I got to do it, that's fine. And then all of a sudden they're like, um, we need everybody to wait in the break room. We're going to figure things out. We'll get back to you. And so we're all like on the computers there or whatever, because it's before like smartphones really took off. And then like half an hour later, they come on the loudspeaker and they're like, um, all the cases have been cleared for today. You all can go. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right. Yeah. I guess that's how when you let it go works, you know? Once (laughs) I was like, all right, I'll be here. They're like, you can go. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. There's a little part of me, I want to say disappointed because right now the timing doesn't work for me, but I... um, I'm interested in all of that, and I mm. think it it will be interesting when when it goes differently, and I can actually sit and commit to, you know, a, a case and maybe you know make some positive impact in someone's world. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. All right, enough about us. Would you like to introduce our guest? Yes. Okay. So our guest tonight tonight's show is the life of a writer, and we have a writer on the show, and uh, it's actually <laughs> someone I've known for a while who's an excellent writer. Um. An esteemed writer. An esteemed writer. Right. A well-known writer. And a very creative writer. So tonight's guest is Alan Salkin. Alan is a world-renowned trend writer, author, filmmaker, and journalist. His first book is Festivus, The Holiday for the Rest of Us, with a forward by Jerry Stiller, a journalistic romp through the world of Festivus. His second book, From Scratch, The Uncensored History of the Food Network, uh, Ford Allen interviewed on-camera talent like Mario Batali, Bobby Flay, Giada De Laurentiis, Anthony Bourdain, and Guy Fieri to tell the gripping 20-plus year history of the network that changed the way the world eats and thinks about food. Prior to making a living as a writer, Allen has had many jobs, including casting industrial films in Hong Kong, wholesaling rubber duckies in Las Vegas, picking oranges in Crete, and peddling oil paintings door-to-door in Western Australia. I mean, who, who hasn't done that? Um, he's also a fan of the Olympics, which he has attended nine right. in his life. Right. So welcome to the show, Alan. Welcome, Alan. Thanks. Very happy to be here. Did you like that intro? Did that do I wrote service? it. <laughs> 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 I, was, <laughs> I would have edited it, in it differently, though. I would have, it would have gotten, I wouldn't have spent so much time on Festivus. Ah, uh, okay. What would you have spent more time on? On like the trend stories that I wrote for the New York mm-hmm. Times and mm-hmm. stuff, like the monocle one. Yeah, monocles are those you know the <laughs> one the one lens mm-hmm. in your eye thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but Ro- I gave Rob for full permission to edit it as he wanted to. Yeah, you did I, a fine job. I actually liked it. I thought it was very interesting stuff for me. Hopefully the audience will agree. If not, we will send out a separate bio that you write, okay. and we'll do a post. How's that? That sounds good. All right, good. So speaking of monocles, thanks for that segue. <clears throat> Pardon me. What is it? Now we, we could just jump right in, but we do want to back up and sort of get to the you know early trajectory of your career because I'm pretty fascinated by well, how can I, varied. I want to I want to like step on you for just yeah, one please, second. Yeah, please, so, please do. A couple Rob things. Rob does all the time. Um, first of all, you. This is actually a good hair day. The, the, for you, if you or no, for me? and it would be for you. If you let your curly hair be curly. Oh, okay. Oh, you are nice. a curly hair fighter, and I can see it. Cause you, have, <laughs> you have potentially very beautiful curly oh, hair. And right now, you've you. sort of fought it down into beautiful wavy hair. Thank you. So if you I fully embraced that. your curls, really? you would see that this humid weather... It's curl heaven. Oh, okay. Well, you know, it's speaking from our curly hair. <laughs> exactly. Dude, I'm going to make a note of that. Thank you. I appreciate. I appreciate the. the I guidance. wrote a trend piece once about curly hair, and there's a there's a salon downtown which has changed hands a couple of times, but called Divashon mm-hmm. downtown New York, and mm-hmm. they have prod- products mm-hmm. called No Poo and the like. And mm-hmm. so, anyway, I. There's a lot of people who are into letting their curls shine. Yeah. I actually have some Diva product at home, but until they pay us for sponsorship, we're not going to talk no, about them too much. much. But I haven't combed yeah. my hair in like a decade. <laughs> it's great. Alan is, is letting the curls go free. <laughs> exactly. So, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And it's lovely. You have really, you have good curls. You do. We'll bring you back for the curly hair show that we okay. actually talked about doing. That's yeah. true. We have another guest as well. So it'll be the curly show. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
But getting to the beginning <laughs> of your writing career, is that what you're going to ask about, Kelly? Well, I was just, I was curious, you know, so yeah, so we could get to the, um, the early part of your career. Why don't we start with that? But I'm interested in what were your early tendencies for esoteric subject matter, speaking of things like monocles and all the other stories that we want to hear about that you wrote, that you've written over the years. Hmm. <clears throat> wow. Well, you know, my brother says I'm the most pedantic person alive. And so I think that... Um, you know, I started out basically... Wait, I read, wait. I didn't do well on the SATs. What does pedantic mean? I, I think it means something like I am overly focused on annoying details. Okay, thanks. But Go ahead. You're, you're, I feel uh, smarter already. Can, <laughs> your listeners can leave a comment on the Facebook live stream and, and they can redefine yes, it I'm properly. Take, I'll okay. take a look and um, see. But, uh, you know, I, I started off basically... After college, I went to Berkeley, and I decided to be a writer, and I was living in San Francisco trying to, like, write poetry and publish myself and get published in zines and things like that. And I think, you know, I, I just tend to see, and I always have, that, like, little things mean a lot, and you can find the whole meaning of the world in something really silly. Mm. And, and, I, and I guess... Since a lot of my story ideas come to me while sitting in a large bathtub, it's mostly <laughs> in New York City. Well, I do. I have the I have this weird walk up apartment that I installed a massive jacuzzi bathtub in. Wow! I have the nicest bathtub on the Lower East Side. Wow, that sounds nice. like an invitation yeah. to our listeners. You're welcome, uh, or you, somebody yeah. else, Callie. <laughs> You're welcome hey, to come. There's there we'll uh, talk, we'll uh, talk. there have been two people, even three, in there oh. at times. Oh, oh right this the show is getting into <laughs> it. Let's not bury any. Leaves. Yeah, your writing's great. Anyway, so what about these parties in your tub? <laughs> One of them led to an, a bad, an ill-fated engagement. I'll put it that way. <laughs> okay, so we're going to have to have you back for part two. Yeah. Well, were all three of you in, engaged? Was it going to be a polyamorous sort of um, household? Or no. Or did you favor one over the other? One was an ex-girlfriend mm-hmm. who kind of oh. uh, mani- manipulated the entire thing oh. in order to hook me up with the new person. Oh. I think she wanted me out of her hair. Oh. Did, did anybody have curly hair? Yes. <laughs> Wait, did anybody get curlier hair? Well, in the hot tub, in the you know jacuzzi bath, there's a lot of steam, and that will curl your hair. Wow, there you go. So, there's yeah. so much tie in already. Here. Uh, so and all, am I allowed to say pubic hair on the show? You're you can say, say whatever you, you want. Curse. So some of the you know, pubic hairs that emerged in the bathtub isn't this disgusting? I don't like pubic it's, hair. So anyway, moving on. <laughs> well, how do we get here? Wait, wait, that heard... ties right back into your early writing career, <laughs> right? Hair, yes. Okay, I knew we would come like back around to it. Exactly. So there you are, writing for a zine, talking about pubic hairs. Yeah, but no, but I, you know, Gawker when it used to exist, they, uh, I think they were trying to insult me when they called me the Seymour Hirsch of the Sunday Style section. So you know, Seymour Hirsch was a famous investigative reporter that you know wrote about the Mylai massacre and. I, I think that's what I would do with the Times, especially. I would find these silly little things, and then I would go ridiculously deep on them and somehow show that, like, just because, for instance, um, the fact that women were ordering steaks more and more. There was something that friends of mine had noticed. Um, so women were ordering steaks on dates in order to prove something to men. Like, I'm uh-huh. low, you know, I'm, I'm a low-maintenance kind of gal, and I can eat a steak. I'm not just going to, you know, be prissy and order a salad. And so you start to see, like, a whole larger sociological, um, you know, trend in just the fact that, you know, steak sales among women are up. Mm-hmm. But you didn't. Well, we actually will. Um, when we when we come back from break, I'd like to hear more about that um, because I'm curious as to like when you set out to write. Were you setting out to be a writer? Were you tra- setting out to be a sociologist? Like, what was the what was the you know how was it all born? So when we come back more with Alan Sar- Salkin. Sorry, I mispronounced your name. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Robin Callie Show. Tonight, our guest is writer extraordinaire Alan Sulkin. Welcome, everybody, in the Facebook live stream. Really appreciate everybody watching. And Callie's going to give some shout-outs. I'm going to give some Facebook live shout-outs. I just want to say hello to Pamela, to Denise, to Eamon. Thank you guys for joining us. I adore you all, and we always appreciate your support. Welcome. Yes. 
Thank you, everybody, for watching. Thanks for listening to talkradio.myc. So we're just getting into the beginning story of Alan's life. There he is with a pencil and a pad and wants to tell stories. Actually, you know, let, let's first of all, you said uh, you almost said Aaron Sorkin. So someday I'm going to get in a room with Aaron Sorkin and Alex Sulkin, who writes for Silicon Valley. And we're all going to – I'm the least famous of all the – Almost Alan Salkins out there. Anyway, um, (laughs) I think the real, I think in some ways the real training to be a journalist and how that happened was that I would be at parties and I felt like I didn't belong and I wasn't right and I was too much of a freak and no girl would talk to me. So I would stand in the corner and I would take out a notebook and I would just start writing notes about how that none of the girls liked me and... You know, I'd make observations about why everybody was a jerk in the room and their, you know, how their clothing, you know, reflected this lack of imagination. And I'd have how old whole, were you, like 12? <laughs> no, yeah, right. unfortunately, I was more like 22. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then, I mean, ultimately, I was living in uh, Los Angeles. I'd been working for my father for a while who was selling, he imported uh, baby toys and rubber duckies. Okay, so that's how I got the okay. rubber ducky thing. Yeah. Going, and I, I had to mention that, dude. I, I don't oh, yeah. think I've ever met anyone who sold rubber duckies. Yeah. yeah, especially if you're going to get that gig, it's only through nepotism. I mean, yes. <laughs> right. those are very hard gifts to get. Son, and you're going to follow me <laughs> and follow the ducks. Exactly. And they were only the cheapest. These were like 99 cent store rubber duckies. These were not, yeah. So uh, they came in and buy the container load from China. So, um, what the hell was I talking about? So, so oh, so so I was working for him, and I, I was living in Los Angeles, yeah. and I, I took a uh, I, I wanted to take a writing class of some kind, and just they had a Saturday news writing class that was at the right time of day, uh, and worked into my schedule, and I ended up going to UCLA and uh, just for this one class, and I wrote for the Sunday for the for the weekly Daily Brune, which was the newspaper there, mm-hmm. and my first story I covered a garlic festival, I got in for free. Uh, I got to meet the Garlic Queen, who had been in a bunch of Russ Meyer movies. And um, what did she look like? She was about nine feet tall, uh, blonde, and each one of her breasts was like the size of Peter Dinklage. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, she was an Amazon. Was she was an Amazon. And was she wearing garlic? Did she no. smell of garlic? She probably had a, a garlic garland of some kind. Okay. But um, no, listen. I guess if you'd oiled her up and you know smeared garlic on her, she would you know and put her on the grill, she would have been delicious. But <laughs> um, but the truth was, I got to go to the front of the line. And I got to eat free stuff. And then my college girlfriend, who I'd broken up with years before and broken my heart, happened to be working at like the hospital at UCLA and actually saw the story and was impressed. So up to that point, I'd published like one short story in a zine, uh, I, you know, a, b- a bunch of little poems here and there. But basically, all of a sudden now I'm getting published, I'm getting free food, and it's impressing chicks. Mm-hmm. And that's k- kind of, yeah. I was like, this works. Mm-hmm. So, um, and when some men have their rock and roll fantasy about being a drummer or guitar player to get laid, you discovered that writing could be your, your lady magnet. If only I had known how to parlay it properly. <laughs> I wish I could go back. Oh, that's youth. So, how, so where did it go from there in terms of the, um, your affinity for those kinds of stories? Because they are so, I want to say delicious, and I don't mean to be cute because later you... Um, emerged into more of the you know the, the the food world, which we'll get to. But what were some of your um, other most uh, outstanding stories that you enjoyed doing? Also, I mean, for the experience, right? Because you're dipping into people's lives or into certain. You cultures. know what it is. I, I I have a policy that I developed as as early as I could and followed as much as I could, which was kind of two things. Number one, I would do stories that got me to a beach. Mm, I always smart. would try to do stories that got me to a beach, and then I also tried to not write about the mafia. The Kennedys or World War Two, and 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 by that I also mean I just didn't I, I went when I first started I I, end, I went to journalism school at NYU and then eventually got a job at the New York Post, which some people may know by their crazy front pages and crazy headlines, but there's actually serious you know journalism work that goes on there, and a lot of my early years I was just following you know plane crashes and I mean I did even interview Bill my first. Pre, uh, question of the president was to bill clinton on block island and i said the following are you here for barbara streisand's wedding 
And he gave me a good answer about it, which was that no, but then he went, rambled on and I you know, got a great story out of it. Because they thought Barbara Streisand was getting married that weekend, uh, so they sent me to like stake him out. Oh, wow. <coughs> he was just there because? He was there because he was on the way to Martha's Vineyard for one of their vacations, and no president had visited in years, and they could just touch the <laughs> helicopter down. He had an ice cream cone and uh-huh. you know, waved to everybody. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, th- th- I have more Bill Clinton stories, but I'll leave it there. And... Uh, so, so I, but I realized in covering all these stories, there's this big pack of press that, that goes around, and I, I was just more inspired by the kind of people who would make their own stories, you know, who, who would go different places and zag when everyone else was zigging, and, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of people who just sit around newspapers, and or used to, when there used to be people working there, uh, who would just wait to be told what to do. Mm. And I, I didn't like that. I would just literally if i was looking for a story i would leave the building i had one editor who would say there's no stories in here they're all out there Mm. Mm. and i would just walk in new york or wherever i was and then find a story and so i i i hope that's an answer i mean i i don't really know it's just what interested me and and you know it's just sort of like everything kind of bothers me i'm kind of got that larry david kind of quality of i can make a mountain out of any molehill (laughs) right which, by the way, it's so great that that curb your enthusiasm yes. is back. I'm just oh, so excited right, about right, that. Yeah. Right. So, um, so have you always found that you like to tell stories, or this was something new for you? You know, I I don't. I I was kind of. I guess it's hard for me to like reclaim and understand what I was doing as a kid and what I really liked. You know, I just literally came from my shrinks couch, uh, you know, before I was here or actually went to a ski event, a PR event. And then I came here, but, um, same thing. Ski basically. Event, yeah. And well, in some ways it, yeah. it is. It's ther- therapeutic. Ther- yeah. Skiing is very therapeutic. <laughs> right. And, but you know, skiing was a thing that I loved as a kid for real. And I knew I loved it. Um, and it's like, was I a shy kid or was I just sort of like, you know, confused and beaten down by a bunch of things. And so I was shy and that's why I was standing there in the writing stories in the notebook. But I, I don't know. I've, I've found that now I've been taking an acting class in LA and I've done some improv and I love being, you know, on stage in front of people. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the real me, or maybe that was just the me that eventually grew. I, I Right. You know, yeah. and so I'm, I, I didn't intend to be a journalist. I thought I was going to, uh, you know, write stories and novels and maybe movies. And, and in a way, I'm still working on that career. You know, it's like right. I still have hopefully another 20 or 30 years of productivity to go. At least. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're a young man. You never know. You never know. And it's going to, right? It could, it could be many, many decades from now. Harry Dean Stanton up. had his best, you know, roles in his 50s. Yeah. Well, and, and you think about all the others that, you know, um, what now I'm thinking quickly. Frank McCourt. I'm, well, no, but I'm also thinking of like Colonel Sanders in his 80s and, you know, Tony Randall having babies. Now, there's a guy who got laid a lot, Colonel <laughs> Sanders. Sanders. He's you know hot. he did. He's Absolutely. <laughs> um, not really. Not to me. Um, well, I was like, I know I just totally as much fried chicken as you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That, that's not exactly. The first, that's not the first thing on my list. What a dreamboat! An right. aphrodisiac um, fried chicken. Um, but you know, going back to the idea, because we share this, we had we we kind of had our quick uh, email exchange when we knew you were coming on the show, and you know, I my medium has always been television and video, but I also have had the great pleasure of dipping into so many subcultures and lives and experiences where it's like fast and hard because they're short lived depending on what your outlet is and um but they're powerful and like you said so aptly in an email often it's the only time this particular person's going to um, have a public voice to share their story and be heard or well, a voice at all right i, I remember responsibility yes it is i remember i was in berkeley one summer and i was freelance writing in uh about i think 2003 or four and uh i um <coughs> excuse me I was driving past uh, a waterbed store, and when I was a kid, I had waterbeds. In fact, I have a waterbed now, thanks to the story that I did. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so wait, so they, so they jumped from the hot tub time machine into yes. your waterbed. Wow. That's quite All right. Are you a water sign? Uh, no, Aries. Okay, just checking. All right. Um, a lot of water yeah, things. the ram. <laughs> so, um, so no, but I saw this this waterbed store, and I thought. Wait a second. You used to see waterbed stores all over the place. I haven't. It's like the Maytag repairman. Like, what is going on here? So I went in there, and I met this guy Roland Formica, and you know he was. Just, I was just so touched by him, and yeah, he's just just one of the many examples of like 
you know, over the years, Roland has since like come to every book reading I've ever Aww. done in San Francisco. And it's like you become part of their lives because mm -hmm. this story is going to hang in his store. Every his relatives are going to see it. Mm. This is a story in the New York Times. It's mm. the paper of record. Yeah. And there's a responsibility to like, first of all, spell his name right. Yeah. You know, tell his story the best you can. And bring to it everything that you can and then also but also believe that your responsibility is to him but is also to do it right and to bring your art to it but also to the readers to tell a good story and to the outlet for for whom for which you're working hmm. depending yeah on but that sort of i think comes from all if you do everything else right yeah I mean, yes, you, you're representing that place. You, know, you walk in, and that, that's one of the, the downsides of working for the New York Times, is people just see you as if you have New York Times you know, tattooed on your forehead, and they bring all of their feelings about the newspaper to you if you're writing mm -hmm. for them. And mm -hmm. they have all these questions about it, and you're just like, I, you know, I was going to hand out like a, a sheet. You know, here's the stuff you want to know about the internet. I, don't th I do think of most of my story ideas. I anyway, I want to go through the whole you just thing. Make a t just make a T-shirt. Yeah, and, but then, and then people would you. think you're a jerk, and you don't. Work. So, <laughs> so there's that. There's there's your, and there's also just in the larger sense, you're a journalist, and especially now with some people thinking that all journalists are making everything up. There's this. Sometimes you have to slowly say, "I'm not making everything up. I'm uh, I'm very interested in you know everything that's true here, and if you want it to be right, you have to talk to me." Mm. Right. Um, so right. there's all that is is, is in play. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this whole idea about fake news? Just the term. Um, I, I think, I think, you know, obviously I don't like it, but, I, but just to give it its due for a second, you watch all these magazines dying and you see that, for instance, Rolling Stone is, um, you know, up for sale right mm -hmm. now. And, um, a lot of those, and I hate By to say By the way, that, when I was a kid, like I waited every yes. week for that Rolling Stone magazine. I mean... It's incredible to even think about them going out of business. It is. And they, uh, hopefully they're not going out of business. They're yeah, just, just young yes. winners selling so, it. Right. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, I think Rolling Stone was always pretty good. Mm. And because it, because it wasn't what a lot of these other magazines were. You know, Esquire in the 60s was a great magazine. But then towards the time when I was reading in the 80s and then in the 90s when I was trying to start writing for these places. Um, and I think it's gotten better again because it kind of. It, because there's no money left in it, in a way, they can almost sort of just focus on being good. And um, I just think, you know, a lot of those magazines, you would open them up, they would open to the watch ad, they reeked of cologne oh and my perfume. Gosh, those perfume mm. samples. Yeah. yeah, and but you couldn't, but you couldn't, almost even couldn't open the damn right. thing to where the stories were, and then the stories. Oh, isn't this funny? There's a story about luxury watches that I can't afford. And 10 pages later, because they had to separate it, there's there's 10 ads for luxury watches. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is a sense that sometimes the media is not telling, not holding up its responsibility to the people for whom it's supposed to represent. You know, they, they say you're supposed to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Mm -hmm. Sounds mm. like a metaphor for the government, analogous to the government. Yeah. But I digress. That's right. That's right. So we're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll get into Festivus. We'll get into the Food Network. We'll be talking all about that. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening. We will be right back. Everybody likes our music. Like, uh, everybody dances in the studio when they hear that Yeah, music. oh, did you get a little groove on? I missed it. A little I was bit. Too busy Alan looking, was getting his looking groove at on. Sam. Nice. Yeah. Welcome back, everybody, to the Robin Kelly Show here on talkradio.nyc and streaming live on Facebook Live. We are here with our guest journalist, Alan Salkin, and we are talking about all things stories, media, different, um, the his, well, quick history of um, different magazines did you have a thought you wanted to finish before i ask you the next no. question something about you were comparing just sort of the the the, the different the, the sense maybe of elegance or purity or lack thereof you know between well, like the 70s and now and magazines <laughs> are obsolete so i know that's a loaded question yeah but but, but maybe magazines be, they got they they started becoming these things that made money and you know just like when music changed from you know being about people trying to express themselves and trying to do the thing itself as well as possible into this business yeah you know the the sort of integrity may have gotten lost in yeah. in some public and so i can see you know <clears throat> excuse me i used to um 
you know, I used to be really annoyed by this sort of certain attitude in certain publications of, well, we know everything and you don't know anything. Mm. And I think if you see the way some people are ready to hate the media, they probably still have this sense of like, they're not getting it. The media is not getting it. And unfortunately, you know, in a time when there's cutbacks in the business, um, it's harder to send reporters out to find you know more stories but i i will and i'll wrap up the thought but just by saying i've noticed because i've applied for a uh whatever a fellowship to go spend a month at the mcdowell colony um that there really are a lot of new sources of funding to support journalists in doing things so that they don't have to be necessarily affiliated with a major news organization mm-hmm. there are opportunities out mm-hmm. there and people understand that this is important yeah. Alan, what's the McDowell yeah, colony? Well, it's like Yado, if you heard of that. It, there's basically, um, it's a place up in the Northeast somewhere. I think it's in, it's either in New Hampshire or Vermont. I'm going to go with New Hampshire. And um, they give you uh, basically a place to live and take care of everything and cut out all your distractions. They bring you a little lunch every day. So, and it's for artists and in all kinds of different mediums, including writers. So a lot of books that you may love and writers you may love, um, go up there and, you know, are able to step out of a world in which it's, you know, can be very difficult to do something as slow as writing a book. Mm -hmm. Mm. Just the idea of tuning out. And I do have a good amount of artists and writer friends that have enjoyed a lot of great like fellowships around the country. So there's such a value. I think there's a value for all human beings in doing that. And in fact, even today, I had a moment, a jury duty of all things, where I noticed you're not allowed to have phones in the courtroom. And it was really quiet and nobody was looking down at their hands. Like everyone was present with one person, the judge, speaking to them. I'm going to give a pitch for the, by far the best productivity tool that anybody can have as a writer. Which is what? It's called Freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, maybe it's called Mac Freedom sometimes. It's a little program. It costs almost nothing. You put it on your computer and you say to it, I would like 10 minutes with no internet. And you just push, you know, you push return and it cuts off your internet. And you think it's not going to matter. Oh, I'll just have the strength to not check my email. As soon as that thing goes on, you start writing. Huh. It's magic. It makes me a little sad that we really need that, but it's interesting. That's you know, an interesting concept. Yeah, well, it's like one of the things that I'm going to start saying on the show is put the phones down, people. Right. Like, yeah. I want to yeah. end but the show with now, that a little bit. But not now, because please yeah. leave as <laughs> many exactly. comments no. as you when can. Right, at the, the end of the show, right. And then after Noreen's show. <laughs> That's yeah, right. After. But um, also, you remind me about the value of having an actual newspaper in my hand or magazine in my hand. I still like that. You know, yeah. reading online is great, but I like getting a newspaper and, like, looking through it. You know, the Sunday Times is so great to look through in my hand with the paper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Overrated. Maybe it's a ritual. No I mean, listen. I, I that that said, I'm getting the Wall Street Journal delivered these days, and I'm I'm really enjoying it. There there is a way of a luxury to it, and there's a way of it that spreads out on the on the table in the kitchen that that's very pleasant. Mm. The smell, the feel. It's like an old, you know, like a book. Yeah. So I wanted to circle back to something because we we like to as much as we can, you know, use our guests and their stories as a way to find some, you know, for people that aren't writers and aren't journalists and um, might not have a piece ever published in the New York Times, but there's always some sense of universality that we try to find. And one of the themes that you brought up, I thought you brought up earlier, is the idea of curiosity, you know, and sort of approaching the world with um, begin, beginner's mind or begin, it's beginner's mind is the expression, right? I think an old, boss, um, an old boss of mine used to say that about me when I first started working with him. I didn't know that that was an expression. I didn't know I was doing that. But, you know, it's kind of the way you talked about earlier, um, how you launched into stories or how you'd go out into the world and just sort of live and be and keep your eyes open and your heart open and things would show up as opposed to things coming to you. And I think there's some sort of an interesting theme here just that's applicable to every, you know, to all our listeners. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you guys think? That is, is curiosity a lost art form? <laughs> you know, one thing I always think about is that because I've been doing this so long, I know how to ask questions. And I compare myself to like a boxer. If, if a boxer gets in a fight uh, in a bar or something, his fists are considered deadly weapons. Mm-hmm. So he can't really get in a fight. And I find mm-hmm. sometimes that if I'm in conversations with people... I can get deep so fast, you know, that it's almost like people don't even know what's going on. And it's almost (laughs) like it's almost unfair. 
I can like crack people. And I'm not. I'm not trying to brag about it. It's it's almost not a good thing. But but to an, in answer to your question, I think you know it's about you know trying to understand that most likely people. Every single person you meet has a story in them. Mm-hmm. And if you ask the right questions and you don't just, um, you know, dismiss them, it's hard for me still. Because, you know, as a as a reporter, I'm basically, you know, looking for somebody to be something I need or I have an idea of what I want. And so I'm sometimes pushing people into the categories. But but I have learned, you know, in, in real life, it's, it's it, try to look people in the eye think about that this is a person and and ask a few questions and you know it, it's so true that like some of these basic things like do you have brothers and sisters where are you from I mean, i'm saying them because they're so annoying sometimes yeah. but they do do you love your dog what kind of dog do you have you know and eventually you're going to get somewhere mm-hmm. so alan you're not a small talk kind of guy then i just get this feeling like you just don't want to no. do small talk you want to get right into it yeah I mean, unfortunately, what I want to usually want to want to know is like, please tell me about the complete crisis that is your romantic life. You know, who in your family is the worst addict? You know, what's the worst story you can possibly tell me about your existence? And I right. love that stuff. Yeah. I feed on it. We'll talk about that during the break. And okay. then the I'm, I'm sure that I'll carry over. Well, you, I mean, Rob knows me well enough, very well, number one. And he knows like how deeply this all resonates with me. Like I could, I could do this with you for three days. This, just this topic, because I, um, I'm very similar like that. And, um, and also when you have a journalist or a producer, when you're doing it professionally and I, who knows what comes first, the chicken or the egg for me, uh, I think curiosity came first based on all kinds of, you know, deep stuff about the way I, you know, just how I was formed as a kid that I could bore you with on another time. Yeah. Um, and then from that, you sort of step into your career. But then there is the other side of you that's always you're working, you're on the clock, you're spending someone's money and it does have to be done efficiently. And it's always an interesting balance to stay out of your ego and be, a, for me, a human being first, well before I'm a producer. I've always said that. And it's um, hard. be really present for them. But getting back to sort of, you know, people at large um, outside of specific industries, I still find that curiosity and, and real presence is a lost art for him mm. and that most people are not looking each other in the eye are not gener- genuinely genuinely curious mm. because they're more interested in what they have to contribute or spitting out whatever it is that they want to throw into the conversation and i'm generalizing certainly um but this is a real sensitive topic for me so maybe my selective <laughs> attention is that i tend to notice that more than i should and i struggle because i always want to get right into the you know I, the meat f- I think it's important to remember that, like, before we had cell phones and stuff to read all the time, there was a lot of boring downtime that was totally wasted. <laughs> and, yes, it's nice that we <laughs> can, like... There was, like, looking at the trees and listening no, to the birds. Yeah, sometimes you would, so like... boring. Right. Sometimes you would lay there and... You'd you, actually or, sit and talk to somebody on the train or at the bus stop. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And we all look at our phones too much. But it's also nice having that little thing where you can all of a sudden just catch up on the news or where the latest hurricane is. Right. That's true. That's true. I want to talk about the value of asking questions because I'm not the kind of guy who is looking to be impressed at all. But one of the things that really impresses me is when someone asks me a good question. If I'm on a date with a girl and she asks a really good question, I am so much more attracted to her because I love that level of interest from one human being to another. And I remember Callie, when you and I first met, and still, even as friends, and, and I have other friends, I'll be talking to them on the phone, and I'll say, that's a really good question. I just love good questions. So... I'm looking at you, and you're for a guy who's how old are you? If you don't want to say, you don't have to. But um, you, you're you are kind of like me, and like you haven't really lost your hair, <laughs> dude. I am so winning. Okay, right. So this is my question you to you. I'm just looking hair. at you, and that's the first question. Like, did you as a kid like were you worried? Like, when did you start worrying you were going to lose your hair? And at what point did you realize? Hey, I'm doing okay here. <laughs> I don't think I ever really worried about it. Uh-huh. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. It's like once I, so, like, I remember a hairstylist told me that you get your grandfather's hair on your mother's side. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so he had his hair. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm set. So but now, but now you must go through your day looking at guys. And you're like, oh, I'm doing better than him, you know. Yeah, but it's like, you know, there are girls that love ball guys. So I think it depends on the person. You yeah. know? Is that even true? There, it is for I, I've heard that it is. 
Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Kelly's not going to speak from personal experience. She read this somewhere try, in a zine. You know I'm, a, I'm an equal, uh, equal. I try to be an equal opportunity uh, lover. No, listen, girl, I, there's but a lot I have of a preference for hair. I do like yeah, hair. There's a lot of chicks who like Tom Colicchio, and I hate using the word chick so much. He's no, very, I apologize. He is, he's yeah. he's so, Telly yeah. Savalas, for those of you who remember. Well, yeah, yeah lollipops. A little bit before. So we got a couple minutes before we go to break. I want to ask you because I've been a writer most of my life, I, copywriting, and I've written some personal stuff. Of creative projects and one of the things I'm always amazed by is when I feel like something came through me like it was just channeled mm-hmm. through me mm-hmm. Paul McCartney talks about let it be came mm-hmm. to him in a dream and he woke up and he wrote it so have you ever found that with yourself that you just got in touch with a part of yourself and you're like I don't even know where that came from oh it's it's almost all channeling I I don't even like speak about it. I mean it's just it you know w- when you're at a under deadline you're at a newspaper there's pressure so that you you have to channel at that time but you uh, you know and it's you know hopefully it'll always keep coming i don't know but absolutely it's something mystical you're you're putting you know you're tapping into some big thing out there and maybe that's the secret to being a writer and that's the secret that anybody can get into it's like yeah i think you know i see people like bob dylan or people like paul mccartney and and you know even more modern names i could bring up and you know i i feel some affinity because i've given myself time maybe or maybe i have more of an ability to like hear with the music of the cosmos i don't know but it's out there for anybody to tap into mm-hmm. cool cool awesome answer and it was a great question, by the way. It was. A great it was. Question. I'm impressed with myself. You should be. Anyway, we're going to go to break. When we come back, I do want to talk about some of your books, and we'll get into some takeaways. We will be right back. And welcome back to the final quarter of this week's episode of The Robin Callie Show here on talkradio.nyc, streaming live on Facebook Live. We are here with our guest, very interesting and esteemed journalist, Alan Salkin. And um, during the commercial break, we learned that he, as much as he favors his hair on his head, that in other ways we should just change the title this is the hair evolved. episode okay yeah we were gonna no, do I'm, I'm hairless almost everywhere except <laughs> on my head that's what okay. i said and my thing that i've been saying since i was a kid is because people are always like do you shave your legs and i would say i've just evolved farther than most people (laughs) (laughs) i am darwin at work (laughs) Um, so before the break we were talking about just the idea rob asked an amazing question because i'm in the presence of great question askers we all, I mean, you and I, we do, we, yeah, we, we pride ourselves on, well, I wouldn't say that's not the right language, but we, we know that it's, um, it's something that's dear to us mm-hmm. and it is sort of the way it's a barometer also for our closest relationships when there's a sense of reciprocity and a sense of equal curiosity. Mm-hmm. I actually tend to, I have to work on doing the opposite. I've been really trying to dig deep about this, which is because I do have a sensitivity to it that <laughs> way precedes, you know, anything, um, like right now in life, um, it's old stuff, but, um, I shut down if I don't feel a sense of reciprocity or depth with people. If I don't feel like they're asking me questions, I have a really um, extreme reaction. I need to, I'm trying to grow out of that and sort of learn some patience. Mm. Yeah. But I think that's why we value it so much because we live in an age of selfies and people focusing on themselves. So it's so nice when people get out of themselves and they're like, oh, so what was that story about? What happened to you? Yeah. Yeah. So for the benefit of our um, listeners and viewers on Facebook Live, hi, everybody. That's right. Uh, especially that we're um, nearing the, the end of this show. Um, in the name of some takeaways, one of the other things that maybe sparked um, for me that might be uh, interesting for us to talk about is um, for people that are not, you know, that are maybe are writers on the inside, just the art form of writing and the fact that it can be a meditative experience. You talked about um, writing coming through you guys, you know, and words sort of finding their way through you. Um, and that happens with uh, often the most purest forms of art for people. But, um, Alan, do you think that there's benefits to people writing that would consider themselves to be, quote-unquote, non-writers? Well, I mean, first of all, remember I said most of my st- best story ideas come to me in the bathtub. Yeah. And that's because I do, you know, I don't bring my cell phone with me because I'm too cheap to risk it. <laughs> and, you know, I don't really have music in there. Um, and I just lay there and I'm relaxed and stuff comes in. Mm. Um, and as far as the people have benefit to writing, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know it's like to be wonderful if I said they did. I had no choice. 
You know, I just started doing it because I was frustrated. I had stuff to say. I just started filling up notebooks. And in a way, I just chose this career because it was what I was doing anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I also then I started blogging very early, you know, when blogs were, you know, a thing when they started. And I did it because I was tired of being mediated by editors. You know, I didn't I I felt like, you know, it was kept my stuff kept getting cut and changed in ways I didn't like. And it was wonderful to have for me this sense of voice on the Internet. And then I got hired by The New York Times and. All of a sudden, you know, some of the stuff that I'd blogged about, they got mad about. Well, why are you in this war with this local diner? You know, well, the diner sucked, uh-huh. you know, and, and it was funny. was And I was and so... they forgot my home fries. Well, yeah, but no, I was so... It was on the Lower East Side back before there were a lot of diners or restaurants down there. And I was so desperate for like a place where you could go like interview people or meet in the middle of the day. And, you know, you go there and they literally couldn't make French fries. It was like, you know, like raw potatoes with ketchup in the middle of it. It was ridiculous. It so, wasn't a greasy enough greasy spoon. Right. And there was no Yelp and there was nothing else. And yeah. so... I was the only person who'd ever written anything about this restaurant. So when people started, you know, Alta Vista-ing to search, you know, my thing came up. And so then I got in this whole email war with this guy. Anyway, so I don't know how I got off on that. But I, I just, I started writing and it's taken me interesting places. And so I don't know if it's right for everybody else. I mean, you know, maybe, and I've, I've made a lot, you know, some videos and I, you know, did video interviews on AOL of famous chefs for a while when AOL was a thing and... Um, so I, I, I don't know. I'm somebody who just has to express themselves. I don't know if that's true for everybody on earth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's great though, that you remind everybody about, excuse me, just the power of empowerment because the way that I created my life coaching album was I got tired of not being cast in voiceover stuff. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do something for my, I'm going to cast myself in something. Is this the boyfriend thing you did? or the- Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. That was a version of it, yeah. I like that. Yeah, thanks. So, um, Virtual boyfriend. Virtual yeah. boyfriend. Shout out. Yeah, right. The original thing was You're the Hero Coaching and Affirmations. And so I started to write it as a script for an audio project, and then I eventually turned it into like you know a, a book so that people could read it as well. But I remember doing that because I wanted to empower myself to give myself work and express myself. Yeah, well, it comes right. The greatest art often or even motivation comes from the bottoming out or, you know, just the pain of not, you know, of inertia or things not going well. And the more successful in a way, like the the, because right now I could just keep pitching stories and doing stuff. The the less in a way you can get that I this is what I'm sort of dealing with now is like, how do I um, do things that still feel fresh and authentic and I'm not just sort of like, well, my ego gets stroked when I have another byline. And then yeah. it's like, I don't, I've had enough bylines. It's fun and I still need to earn a living. But, um, you know, there's other things I'm trying, other new ways of expressing myself that I'm, I'm where I'm trying to get. Mm-hmm. Should we talk a little bit? We haven't had an opportunity really to talk about your um, your foodieism and your books, okay. which I'm fascinated by your relationship with the Food Network, your knowledge of their history. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, basically, I, uh, I where to start? I, I long story short on that, I was um, working at the New York Times, and I got a call from somebody who was telling me I needed to write a story about this guy uh, who ran a food festival down in Miami, and that I should write an article about him. This was like spring break for chefs, and. I asked the most important question you could about this food festival down in Miami, if you live in New York, which is what? Do I get free food? When is it? Uh. February. Uh I'm extremely interested. Uh Okay. So um, luckily, my editor sent me down there. This was 2007, and I was amazed to find that, like... People like Mario Batali and Emeril Lagasse and Bobby Flay had entourages and women throwing themselves at mm. them and agents <laughs> and money. And Emeril had just sold most of his businesses to Martha Stewart for like five zero million dollars and uh, 50. And um, anyway, this this led me to eventually when I left the Times, think about how did this all start? How did this happen? And all roads, as far as I was concerned, led to Food Network. And I was amazed nobody had really told their full history. Yeah. It is amazing now hearing it in retro, you know, retrospectively um, that it was untapped. Yeah, well, I mean, when we were kids, chefs were that was not a good business to go into. Nobody wanted us to do it, um, and you know, all there was was a couple shows on PBS, and no, and they didn't think Food Network was a good idea, at the, and it took years for it to make a profit. 
to what I could go on about this. Yeah. I have an hour shtick on this, so you want to get. You better on? just ask me what you want to know. Well, I'm, and I'm wondering too if it was not to get too in the weeds of this, but I, I, I mean, the trend. Why do you think that the, that trend started evolving and these guys became rock stars? Because I feel mm. like I noticed that happening even with the home improvement shows after 9/11 when people started nesting more. I don't know I, if you make I, that well 9/11. Yes, 9/11 was an important moment <laughs> right? for Food Network because yeah. you got Rachel Ray and and <coughs> excuse me, and she started. Um, kind of showing this simple way back into the kitchen. But right. I think going back, talking about rock stars, I mean, first of all, there's a guy named Shep Gordon uh, who was Alice Cooper's um, road manager. And there's a great documentary about him called Super Mensch, which you can see on Netflix, oh. made by Mike Myers. Um, and Shep was r- literally invented the idea that chefs could be rock stars. And there's a fascinating way that he made this marriage. Okay, this does but, familiar. Um, but, but I think like I was talking about, you know, if you think about how music came out of the sixties, it was this very, you know, it was the most important art form for people. Music was blowing people's minds in the sixties and part of the seventies. And then, you know, come the eighties, it kind of died down a bit. And, but music, rock and roll music started as blues music. It, it is a great American art form in the Delta and it took changes in technology like the electric guitar, television, and radio for it to become this dominant force that it did and increasing, you know, fidelity and everything else. So if you look at food, food was this art form that was sort of not paid attention to in America very much, but event but starting in really the 70s at Chez Panisse, the famous restaurant in Berkeley, mm-hmm. and Alice then Waters. in the 80s, right, with, with, with Wolfgang Puck and, you know, the celebrity chef thing was mm-hmm. supposed to only be an 80s thing. They thought it was there was stories written in like ninety one. Well, the celebrity chefs thing is over, but then what you have is cable TV is going from like sixty channels, right? MTV and you know all the originals to the five hundred channel universe, and they were desperate, and they so they had new technology with digital right. channels, right. and they were desperate for content, and so what what happened was you had a thing that had not yet been polluted by money and and commerce at too much. And so a great sort of American nascent art form that was happening in places like downtown New York and in Berkeley and in in New Orleans and Chicago and Boston. And you put it on the air, use a new technology, you spread it across the country. And then, I mean, when I was a kid, nobody knew what kale was. You drive across the country and there was nothing to eat but Stucky's pecan logs. (laughs) Right. And um, and so ultimately, you, you take this art form, you spread it around, and it's something real, and it's new. And kids were the ones who were obsessed with Food Network to start with, and and I think that's ultimately how it how it how it caught on. And now it's kind of dying down our interest in it because it's become you know so commercialized. Right. So so quickly, what what's the name of your book, and where can people from find scratch? The what the hell is it? From scratch, inside the Food Network, or from scratch, the uncensored history of the Food Network. You can get it on Amazon. It's a popular book buying and and uh, other website. Okay, and how can people get a hold of you? Uh, AlanSalkin.com, which is spelled A L L E N S like Sam A L K I N. Alan. I asked my mom why she spelled it that way, and she said because that's how you spell Alan. <laughs> <laughs> so great! So thank you so much for being a guest. An honor thank to you, be Alan. here. Yeah, so really appreciate it. You. Great story. Thank you so much. I know. I feel like we could do another few hours with you. Um, quickly, I want to just digress. I want to do a quick shout out. Um, uh, Conscious Good Media, ConsciousGood.com. It's a transformative media digital platform that I work with that I'm very passionate about. We're doing the Mindscape Short Film Festival here in New York City next Tuesday night, September 26th. You can find us on Facebook under Conscious Good Mindscape New York. Join us. It's going to be a bunch of um, mind-centric short films that are really, really amazing, beautiful work. And some of the filmmakers will be there as well. So we'd love to see you. Yeah, it'd be great. Thanks for listening, y'all. Take care.